Welcome to another episode of Electable. I'm Deb Chubb, and uh, this podcast is sponsored by the Indiana Women's Action Movement. So today we are really uh, lucky to be joined by Michael Hicks from Ball State University to talk about his in, uh, very intensive study of the Indiana economy and its development uh, between 2010 and 2019. There's been some articles published and a terrific report. And I just wanna mention uh, a little bit about um, Michael uh, because I think this is really just great to know that we have this terrific educational institution in Indiana doing such great work. So uh, Michael Hicks is the director of Ball State uh, Center for Business on, and Economic Research and the George and Francis Ball Distinguished Professor of Economics in the Miller College of Business. Uh, his research interest is in state and local public finance and the effect of public policy on the location, composition, and size of economic activity. Um, uh, uh, Professor Hicks earned his doctoral and master's degree from University of Tennessee and a bachelor's from Virginia Military Institute. Uh, he's a retired Army Reserve Infantry, infantryman. Sorry about that. So um, welcome, um, Michael. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. This is oh, Deb. It's good to be with you. I am just. I'm very excited about this conversation because this is really great. Um, I love talking about public policy in Indiana, and um, and this uh, really just covers so many so many policy areas. So. Uh, and so I'd like you to kind of just briefly describe your your report on the economy. I, I know it's much more in depth than I'm giving you know time for, but right. there's so many other things that I want to talk about that go into your findings because uh, you did a great job of really detailing uh, detailing the cause of the developments in Indiana. So if you could just kind of give us a quick uh, recap of the findings uh, from your report. Right, great, great question. What I, what I tried to do in this work is to lay out a, a decade or longer of Indiana's economy. Many people think that this has just been a great decade. The Indiana economy has just been, you know, improving in all, you know, cylinders, everything is great. And that just is, there's no evidence that that is the case. And so um, instead of sort of attacking hyperbole, I just went back to look at the data. And I wanted to, in this work, uh, you know, sort of lay out several different things. The first one is that the Indiana economy, and particularly in that long recovery from 2000, from from July 1st of 2009 till the you know end of January of 2020, which was the longest expansion in U.S. history, the Indiana's economy underperformed on every critical metric. Our Per capita income growth was slower than the nation as a whole, so it's we're well below the nation, so it's running away. Our productivity growth in manufacturing is above the, has been above the national average, and that's now reversing that we're moving the wrong way. The types of jobs that are being created in Indiana are very heavily concentrated amongst the least skilled workers, uh, and so we're 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 slipping away from our our you know once fairly dominant economic position. And I, and I just go back to point out that, you know, back in like 1970, we had the 17th highest average wage per job, and we're like 34th or 35th now um, in terms of, and the things that drive, the second part was then, what are the things that drive these bad outcomes? And they're really um, linked to the 
educational performance of our population. So Indiana, which has a below average educational attainment in terms of adults with a college degree, an advanced degree, post-secondary preparation for the trades or some other uh, uh, occupation, or even just high school graduates as a share of the workforce are all below the national average. And instead of, if you're below the national average, you might hope that you would catch up over the coming decade of economic expansion when budget tax revenues were growing and there was plenty of opportunity to do so. Instead, we we slipped farther behind the U.S. on each and every one of those metrics. And so while we're getting better, our per capita income is growing but much more slowly than the nation as a whole. Our education attainment is getting, up until 2019 was getting better, but much more slowly than the nation as a whole. And so that means that the average American is doing a lot better than us right now and then growing at a faster rate. They're, all these measures are getting better. And so we're moving farther and farther behind. And I call, I've been calling this the Mississippi strategy um, because Mississippi comes in last in most of these metrics. And we're moving in that direction. And some of the really key measures, like just the raw number of bachelor's degree as a share of the workforce, uh, uh, and because that's a really important work category, we're 44th in the country. And so, you know, we have a lot more, we have a lot of colleges here, so we have more advanced degrees um, and, you know, big medical presence, that sort of thing. But in the core thing that would drive a, you know, a technology business to expand here or, a new uh, corporate headquarters like Amazon to move here, the things that the state government says they want, we're just farther behind. And so then at the end of this study, I try to say, you know, the only way we're going to get better on these measures in the next decade or two or three is to actually get better at the fundamentals, you know, have better schools, a higher share of our students go on to post-secondary education, a higher proportion of them graduate. And while this is a complex thing, spending on these things do play a, a, an outsized role in delivering quality. All right, that's great. That is a great summary of your, of your, um, of your report. So um, again, I, I like to go back to, you know, talking about, you know, uh, you know low taxes, you know, the, the agenda has been keep taxes low, be the lowest corporate tax rate, you know, in the country. Um, and then we did see, as uh, you pointed out in your report, increasing uh, increase in manufacturers. Um, but as you just pointed out, um, a reduction in educational attainment. So, and you, uh, you know, talk about that at length, about the brain drain, people leaving and, um, and the lever gap, those leaving having a higher educational attainment than those coming in. Um, and then really the, you know, the, I don't know, the cat gets out of the bag when you start talking about manufacturing uh, productivity uh, and the lack of growth there. And, uh, and you mentioned in your report, uh, the, the Pew study that really showed that Indiana was, I don't know, 10 years behind in their technology manufacturing or their technology industries um, in Indiana, that we just have not kept up with the, uh, the digital technology uh, skills and um, investment that many other states uh, have been putting into their uh, into their uh, their human capital, which I, I love that uh, term. I love and I and I want to talk about that a little bit too. So yeah, so now we've seen all of these impacts and we see why we are uh, not doing better than we are economically. Um, but uh, you kind of say at one point, you know, the bottom line is it's the human capital, and it's the investment in human capital. 
So if you could just kind of describe that term uh, for us, I think yeah. you know, it's, it's a bit, I know it's complex, but, um, but if you could give us a little bit of an idea, I mean, as you said before, you know, capital investment is, you know, buildings and things and equipment. Uh, and, uh, but let's talk about what's human capital. Right. Um, good question. You know, the, the, we use these terms in economics, and I apologize to everybody, they, they're, they're sort of a technical term that we like to think about it. So, uh, you know, physical capital for production is stuff like the machinery at a factory, the computers, the technology, the building that you have, the Zoom technology that we're working on now. Um, and then there's public capital, roads, bridges, school buildings, things like that, that deliver some public service that comes from them. Um, and, and people have been investing in these for, you know, uh, thousands of years uh, here in the United States. You know, we have uh, obviously a lot of investment in roads, bridges, water, sewer systems, and those sorts of things. And we, when we make investments in those, we think about a rate of return. You know, what are they, what's that going to generate? And it's, is the benefits going to exceed the cost of borrowing uh, for local governments or for a business? That's the really hard-headed business solution to doing capital investment. But for human, and then we have workers, but really economists now, the, you know, the big work and what causes economic growth has been about human capital for almost 50 years now. And that argues that what really causes the differences in growth between the U.S. and, say, Ghana or between New York and Mississippi is human capital, some measure of the quality of the workforce. And, and that's a hard thing to get your arm around because it's not, you know, we usually proxy this by formal educational attainment. But I always chuckle because anybody who thinks that just a formal educational attainment uh, is a good measure of human capital has never been to a faculty meeting, right? Uh, and so... Uh, it, but but just you know years of schooling are, is a fairly good proxy for the, the uh, you know the number of workers that are there formal years of schooling maybe a couple of measures of threshold credentialing like a bachelor's degree or high school graduates um, uh, measures of overall health are important workers that are just small differences in health individually cause a drop off in productivity, particularly in later years as workers are gone for, for more days. So that those are all human capital measures uh, that we use in our mathematical models. But when we think about investment in and what we're thinking about is, you know, early childhood education, a really fine elementary school, high quality transition to secondary education at the high school level, a comprehensive college prep type uh, high school, um, availability of trade or workforce training for students who choose not to go on to college, but, but done near the end of their high school, not at the beginning of their preparation for secondary education as Indiana has done. And then the abundance of post-secondary options, everything from can you immediately enter a plumber's apprentice program somewhere to what types of colleges and universities do you have? And then what share of adults go into them and graduate? And even more important than that, how is the access across domains? Because the big untapped human capital uh, is always the poor but capable child who could go on to, to college, but doesn't see a path there. They don't have a family member who's a college graduate. They don't have financial access to it. And if they did, you know, one little problem in school, uh, uh, an illness at the end of your sophomore first semester could throw you out of school because you can't you can't afford to it or you have to repeat a class in the summer and you you don't have time to do that. So 
Those are the things when economists talk about human capital that we think of. And the reason we use that word capital is that these things are enduring. And what's interesting about them is unlike an investment in a road or a bridge or a piece of technology, those the value of that decays over time. It gets, it weakens. And so the road needs to be repaired. The machinery becomes obsolete or worn out. Um, and then you replace it. That's the depreciation problem. Human capital generally does not depreciate. It generally appreciates over most of a working lifespan. And so having, th that's why an investment in an early childhood education today for, for some share of children is something that's gonna be persistently obvious in the data 40 or 50 years from now, because you will be able to look back at those students and see that as they reach you know, uh, adulthood, their educational outcomes are better, their human capital is stronger across all kinds of domains. Um, and then it strengthens over the rest of their lifetime. And then it starts to decay when you start getting my age and you start getting you know, forgetful and, or you replace those formal skills that you acquired in school with some savvy elsewhere. So that, and that's a difference. That's a shocking difference. When we invest in physical capital, we anticipate it's gonna decay. Uh, so it's long-term benefits are smaller. When you invest in human capital, it typically doesn't decay. And that's a, a would argue for much more investment than we have now. Well, that's great. So, um, okay. So you pointed out in your report that um, public education spending between 2009 and 2019 uh, shrank by 1.28 billion per year. So, um, and is, the, is there some, you know, calculation that's bringing that to present dollars or is that just raw data? That's just a raw Yeah, number. no, that's in, that's in um, uh, constant dollars. So I put everything in $2020, $2019 or $2020 just to make comparisons. We always sort of do that. And so the way to think about that was if uh, Indiana had spent the same share of its income on education or its GDP on education in 2019 than we did in 2009, then we would be spending another $1.8 billion a year, which is roughly 30% more on education. We would be more like Ohio if we did that. We would be spending about 20 to 30% more on on uh, public education and, and public education we spay we spend money on charters vouchers transfers you know those are, so I'm not I'm not picking one silo school all those are a, a benefit um, and and that I think is at the root of much of our problem is that we 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 went through a big school choice uh, shock uh, to the system I think there's a, a preliminary evidence that that was generally good across the board and then instead of exploiting the opportunities from that by making sure that everything got better um, we said well that having school choice is a substitute for spending instead of a complement to higher spending and so now we're going to cut spending and I think we're now bearing the bitter fruit of that and the most obvious place that we can see that in the data is that the share of our adults going off to post-secondary education really started to decline in about 2015 and has, is much lower now than it was you know, that time ago. Um, and that, that, what that means is that not only are we not then uh, you know, improving our human capital uh, effectively in Indiana, we're actually moving away from the national average not moving towards it. And that's a shocking, when you're, when you're 
38th or 39th in educational attainment as we are in Indiana, and you're now making discrete policy choices that inevitably cause you to move farther to the back of the line. I mean, we're right under Puerto Rico. We're right under Puerto Rico in our share of adults with a college degree. In Indiana is right under Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is a fine place, but most Hoosiers probably would not set uh, 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 that location as one that is aspirational with respect to education, but indeed it is. And so I think that's really the, you know, the, the, the very counter to the narrative that you hear about this supercharged advanced economy. Uh, and, and that's just not really what we observe. And maybe the best way to see that is despite the almost gloating about the performance of Indiana's manufacturing economy, since 2000, the only type of jobs by, that have grown in manufacturing, the only educational attainment category that is higher today than it was 20 years ago in Indiana manufacturing are for workers with less than a high school diploma. So these are high school dropouts are doing better um, in every other category, we're well, well down uh, across the board. And so if that's our strong industry, if that's the industry we have to focus on, we're in desperate, desperate trouble. Right. I mean, because what goes along with that is that those people who are, you know, growing in number um, are, are living less well, are mm -hmm. depending more on government subsidies. Um, I, you know, I, I think you heard somewhere that Walmart's one of the biggest employers of SNAP recipients. Uh, you know, so so they're they're you know the working poor uh, who have all kinds of other problems end up with much higher um, in rates of health problems. Um, you know, probably uh, less access to higher education. We'll talk about that a little bit later mm -hmm. because I do want to talk about um, how these policies uh, impact rural areas in particular. Um, but um, uh, yes, I, that is the experience that I've had um, on on the school board. Is this this kind of uh, and I, this is my new word of the day, his, hysteresis. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so I used to say that I felt like as a school board member, uh, our school corporations were being yanked from here to China and back. And now I can say that we are suffering from hysteresis, uh, which is, uh, that's the definition of being yanked from here to China and back. But, um, you know, when you talk about these policies and the investment in education, um, uh, you know, politically speaking, um, you know, it's been it's been awful. It's been difficult. Um, you know, you make these points. I mean, it's see, it's common sense that you have to invest in education to get a well-trained and well-skilled workforce and to improve the economy. Um, but the response often from the Republican supermajority is, well, we spend half of our budget on education. So I, I guess <laughs> you know, but you know, I guess there's no there's no way, at least easily, to compare that to the costs that they're giving money they're giving up by these constant tax cuts, which we have gotten again in this year uh, that, you know, go, you know, that kind of uh, are staggered up, you know, a little higher over the next um, three or four years. Mm -hmm. So how do you, you know, how do you, how do you uh, say that in policy terms, you know, that makes sense because that's always the response that, well, half of our budget is goes to K-12 education. Um, how do you say, well, now's the time to invest in that and make it higher than half of our budget? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I say that's both true and irrelevant that half of our budget is going to education. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the, the, the financing debate about schools 
tends to devolve on the challenges, naturally, of course, to devolve on the challenges naturally of hiring good teachers, promoting and retaining good teachers, ensuring that you have a small classroom, ensuring that there are other supplemental experiences for children, that the outcomes are good, um, that the uh, uh, you know, th that experience is good and that if budgets are cut, those become highly problematic and it's very difficult for school corporations to raise money in a school in a state that's over average age. You can run a referendum, but most people don't have children in the school system. So it's very difficult uh, to, to, to get to the other side of that referendum process. And, and so, and then you're, as a parent, your time that you worry about schools is, you know, uh, a short, you know, if you have, my youngest graduates this year, so I'm I'm going to lose my bubble of concern over the local public schools. Um, I'll care about schools in general, but I'm not going to be involved in are they wearing masks today or what's their spring break schedule. Um, and so I think those are important discussions to have. But the real policy discussion that I think animates the should animate a general assembly made up of conservative Republicans is that having poor educational outcomes is, is bad for business. It's bad for gross domestic product growth. It's bad for the environment of a state that wishes to aspires to have high quality employers in the, in the state. So I, I try to make a lot of my argument in that way. There's a lot of ways to skin the cat on this that I'm not suggesting mine is best. It hasn't been successful perhaps. And so that maybe you should judge that. But what I do like to do is to say, you know, when you're thinking about do, you know, Indiana's taxes now on manufacturing are fourth lowest in the country. And yet we've lost 150,000 manufacturing jobs in 20 years. We went from being 24th in 2000 up to 38th highest in uh, 2006 when Governor Daniels was elected. We're now down to fourth highest. So, so, and I think we're being beaten by like places that don't have manufacturing, like, you know, Vermont and Alaska and Hawaii. So in, in reality, this is from a purely fiscal basis is the, the best place to locate a manufacturing, but manufacturers aren't coming here. They're not hiring people. Why is that? Well, it's because they don't have the people that they need here. So, uh, uh, oh, Intel just chose Ohio, right? right? Um, well, and how about it, our own Eli Lilly, who and Eli goes to North Lilly, Carolina? Uh, I mean, and I hate to say the fact that Eli Lilly went to North Carolina sounds an awful lot like to me, like the signal that was being given to by Ball Corporation to Muncie in the 1980s and 1990s, which was saying, you better fix your schools, you better make a place where I can bring my corporate headquarter employees here because it's really hard to get people to want to move to this, this neighborhood because the quality of life isn't very robust. You don't have good schools here in Muncie. And they did that for, or you go to Lincoln National, which left uh, Fort Wayne in the 1990s as well for over a decade said, look, I need better schools. I need a place that people want to live. I need to do something. And after 10 years, the CEO got up and announced we're leaving. And I've complained every year at these chamber meetings in front of the mayor, in front of the school board for 10 years, and nothing has changed. And so the Eli Lilly's saying, you know, uh, there's no, no Hoosier name that's, there's no name of any corporation that's more Hoosier than Eli Lilly. Um, and yet that they said, we're, we're not going to make this stuff here in Indiana. We're going to go to North Carolina, right? A state that in 1970 was a backward, you know, second, it, it just 
horrible 1970, but they've been able to pull educational attainment way up. So there's no place in Indiana for an Intel or an Amazon or an Eli Lilly factory to go to do these sorts of things. And yet there are, and, and I would just point out that Ohio spends uh, a smaller share of their tax dollars on education, but it's more, more money. Right, so th so they're they're spending twenty cents more uh, on every dollar, twenty percent more overall per student than we are in Indiana on higher education and K through twelve, and so that's what's driving the movement of commerce to those places. And so, you know, you can cherry pick a two year period where Indiana outperformed somebody else because the RVs grew or something else, which is kind of what you get in a a state of the state address, but an honest assessment of where we are. Pick pick any date, pick two or three dates around it, you know, make a comparison. And Indiana has just underperformed on every key measure. Um, and and you know, I just don't want to add, everybody wants people without a high school degree to get a better ed, to get a better job. That's the, one of the best ways to improve your human capital is to get a job, work hard, your employer, if, if the, he or she is a, you know, a decent manager is going to do things that give you better skill sets, make it more likely that you can have a better career. So I'm not dismissing, and these are important citizens who haven't completed high school, many of them are immigrants, uh, they're from, you know, uh, ethnic minority like the Amish that are, you know, don't finish school. So I'm, I'm not suggesting these are, uh, aren't people that we should care about. But if your economy is being dominated by growth in this area, which is very susceptible to uh, a labor demand shock because of automation or trade, then you're really setting yourself up to be clobbered in the next decade or two. And that's where Indiana is right now in 2022, setting itself up for uh, a real difficult decade or two economically. So I, you know, and I was, I, I think I was even impressed with your figures in the report that, um, you know, connected um, uh, uh, higher education to better pay and better jobs. I mean, we all kind of know that intuitively, but I, it seemed like, I, I can't remember the, the number now, but it seemed like incredibly high. I mean, a super high correlation. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I try to tell people it's, it, it you know, I, so I'm a college professor. A lot of people say, oh, it's, you know, you're just pushing college. I think, yeah, look, you know, uh, you have no idea how unconnected I am to the number of students that we have coming through the, the university and the work that I do. The real fact is that there are two big factors in educational attainment that people ought to care of. The first one is just if, if you want to see how rich a state is in terms of its average income, about 70% of the difference in each state is explained by the share of adults that have a bachelor's degree. So you go from 25% adults with a bachelor's degree to 30%, then you're gonna go from the below average to near the average of states in income. That's five, six, $7,000 a year. Now, a lot of that's being driven simply by the more productivity that's attached to college graduates. And you know, again, productivity is often considered a, a loaded word. I'm talking about dollars produced per worker in a, in a in a, in a county or a state or an industry. There's nothing fancy to it, no, uh, you know, nothing other than that, just dollars produced per year per factory. And so the lowest states, you know, Mississippi, we're like sixth or seventh, you know, right? So where we have lower productivity then, which is crazy because we're dominated by a high productivity industry, which is manufacturing. So we shouldn't be that bad. So we're under Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, and Ohio. We're worse than all of those, both in educational attainment and worker productivity. 
Um, and th but there's another piece of this that people miss is if you're um, if you don't have a college degree, the place that will give you the highest income is to be in a office or a factory or a county with a that has a higher share of college graduates. So the number of college graduates actually drive the overall regional productivity up through some sort of spillovers. We don't know exactly why that is. We think that there are you know, workers of different skill levels act as complements. And in places that you have too many low, lowly, poorly educated workers, the businesses are not forming there to match them with a lot of college graduates. And, and so it's not a, I'm not making an elitist argument. What I'm saying is you send more kids to college, primarily poor kids, you know, kids who've done less well in school. That's where the untapped human capital is. It's not a guy like me, you know, upper middle class, you know, family went, didn't do great in high school, went to college and, and sort of bloomed later. Those kids go to college. It's the high performing kid in the lower 25% of income who could do really well at college, who could, you know, really have a fine opportunity. It just doesn't get there. They didn't, they're, you know, here in Indiana, we tout programs that generally don't do a lot for us, like the 21st century program, because- I wanted to ask you about that specifically. Right, um, if so you it, could talk about the outcomes of that, because, um, you know, great idea, but- yes. For whatever reason, um, and I don't know, you know, what the actual numbers are, but my, you know, just anecdotal experience is that so many people who, who qualify for that um, fail to sign up because, you know, you have to sign up during middle school. Um, right. For this. So, and so you can't, you know, after, if you don't do it, then you're out. Yeah, and the benefit, of course, is huge if right. you sign up in time. So the, the, am I right it, that it's not oh, really... Yeah. The, I mean, it's not happening. The people, you know, people are not really benefiting from that program, you know, in a, on a big spectrum. Right. So, I mean, you're exactly right. 21st century program on paper looks fantastic. You sign up early, you make a promise not to get in trouble, do drugs, do any of that sort of stuff. And at 13, if you sign up and you keep your grades above a C, you go to college and we'll pay college tuition. And you still got to pay room and board, but we'll pay college tuition. A lot of times universities will kick in money to it. Those are the students they really want with that. Sounds superb, right? The problem is you got to sign up at 13, right? So unless the middle school is really pushing this and you, you know, if you've been a parent of a middle schooler, you know, the number of times you're going to get that green Mimeo sheet of paper coming in their backpack, it's going to end up on the kitchen table is, is small in the best of households. Unless you have really good connection with that, it's, you're not going to have high take rates. The things that would cause a family to be eligible for this in the first place are likely to also make it less likely that they'll sign up, right? If you're a single parent, if you have lit low literacy skills, if you don't speak English well, if you're um, you know, if the, all of those things make it less likely that that green announcement sheet that's supposed to come home in the backpack is going to end up on your uh, kitchen table and, and, and mom or dad's going to have time to deal with it to sign up. So that's problem one is we just have too few kids that know about it and then and they make mistakes and five years later, you're not in the system and you're in trouble. That's problem one. Problem two is the uh, restrictions on your on what could happen to you are so much that it just winnows out a lot, particularly boys, right? So, um, you know, your your things that something like eighty or ninety percent of children do in high school, behavioral wise, could get you knocked out of this program. And so, I just got to be frank with you: I, I wouldn't have been eligible for it for the trouble I got into high school. Um, I had a fairly a respectable college and academic career. My father, who was a well-known scientist, wouldn't have been, um, and none of my children would have been, and they're at, at an Air Force Academy graduate, a BMI 
uh, junior and one heading off to West Point in the fall. So if kids like that or me or my dad couldn't make it because of some, you know, mistakes that we made in high school that other institutions said, I will still take you, would knock you out of being able to go to Indiana State on a 21st century program. The program is not doing what it was designed to do. And it, because it's going to cost money, there's real pushback at doing things that would enable kids to go. And, it, and don't get me wrong, it's, it's, uh, there are many pathways to go to college if you're poor, um, you know, you can join the military, this GI Bill. Those kids who do that ain't coming back to Indiana. So if you're in South Bend and you're a poor young man and you're smart and you really want to go to college, there's a nice two-year enlistment in the Army today that you can walk out with the GI Bill. Uh, I have a PhD on the GI Bill. My father had a PhD in the GI Bill. Those people uh, are not coming back to Indiana. So you're losing their, hum they're, they're going to go to 29 Palms to join the Marines or they go to Lachlan Air Force Base to join the Air Force or you know, maybe they're going to, uh, um, you know, Oklahoma for Navy basic training, and they're never coming back. And so it's, it's really the goal of a human capital policy is to see how many of our kids can we get into high quality educational opportunities post-secondary, because that's really the entry level position. Uh, you know, the, the, the study talked a little bit about it. Eight out of 10 of all the net new jobs created in the United States over any time period of the last 30 years, either 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, have gone to college graduates. Let me say that again, 80% of all the net job growth has gone to college graduates. The other 20% of net job growth has gone to people who either have an associate's degree or some post-secondary collegiate experience. So they've been to two years of college, they have a manufacturing technology degree. So 100% of all the net job growth in the United States combined has gone to people with a bachelor's who have been to college and uh, earned and or earned a degree. And so if you're graduating from high school today and you have no post-secondary educational plans or you don't graduate from high school, there will be fewer jobs available for you in 10 years and 20 years and 30 years. That's not turning the corner more human capital is gonna be needed by businesses down the road. And so if we have an educational system that's not telling every kid at 18, you're not done yet, young man or young woman, you need to do something else. 100% of kids, we should be graduating no kids, almost no kids. And I'm gonna be honest, some just aren't gonna go, uh, but we should be graduating no kids from high school who aren't ready to go to college or a really high quality internship program down the road. And that's what we're failing in in big numbers, I think. Okay, two questions. So one of them is, uh, you know, two problems with that, you know, that ideal pathway. Um, one is, um, are we graduating kids that are ready for college? Um, and the other is, if we are, um, you know, access to high, higher education, is just financially so much less attainable than it was um, when I was young. I know mm -hmm. when I was young, you know, I know, you know my mom used to say, anybody can go to the state school, you know, you can get, you know, you can pay for it, you can find a Pell Grant. Um, but it's, you know, in the, you know, years after I was that age, it has just skyrocketed. Um, so the cost of um, higher education is such, uh, such a challenge. Uh, and I think it's become, you know, it's just become, Part of the culture now that that we know that it's going to be out of reach for you know particularly low-income families and even moderate income families so 
What do we do about that? Yeah, huge, huge sticker shock on school. There, there are a couple of points to it. The first one is, you know, and, and I support putting pressure on the college and universities to do things about that. The actual instructional cost of a college or university, uh, you know, at Purdue or Ball State or IU, or just to pick those big three, are really about where they were uh, in inflation-adjusted terms 10 or 15 years ago. So we're not, the way the, the tuition growth has really dampened here, uh, and it's true nationwide. The real extra cost to colleges is, is the other stuff. The big one is the opportunity cost you give up in having a job because a you know, high school graduate could you know, earn $25,000, $30,000 a year. So if you just go to college and you're not working, that's a $100,000 to $160,000 you give up uh, from not working. And then the second one is just the cost of living in has really skyrocketed. Part of that's due to colleges over overbuilding dorms, uh, you know, making luxury, you know, sort of uh, 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 nicely appointed dorms. Um, but I think the real cost is just providing, you know, meals and doing that sort of thing with it because the most kids don't live in those expensive dorms. They go to kids who are willing to pay full, can pay that full price to have the the really fancy dorm. Uh, and so, you know, in general, um, I'm not, con I, I know it's expensive to go to college. Uh, the rate of return on it is so high that for most, most people who go um, are going to see the, a really big financial benefit from it. Now, where that's not true is in about three locations. One is if you spend a lot of money to get a very low demand major, right? So, um, and, and for low demand major, there are not that many of them, uh, but, but if you have accrued a $100,000 debt to get a degree in a, in a major that you, the, the major itself isn't what gets you the job, there's some other talent. So think, uh, you know, music. Well, I was or, philosophy, like my, my college age kid came home and said he wanted to change his major to philosophy. Right. Well, philosophy does well if you have a if you have a law degree at the end of it. Um, oh, yeah, so yeah. That's a big one. Or if you, and this has been a it's a problem that's really no longer the case is that there are a number of kids uh, who were duped by a, a big for profit college system, uh, number of big for profit college systems that didn't really get them the credentials they needed to get out. Uh, and then the third one is, and I think a lot of kids um, are in uh, remediation. Uh, the sort of sad truth here in Indiana is about half of what Ivy Tech does is remedial education for high school and middle school. So about we spend about a billion dollars a year in both Ivy Tech and workforce development. And almost about half of that is allocated to sort of pre-algebra, algebra one, uh, middle school science measurement and reading. And so having a better K through 12 system. One that's less stressed with other add-ons is probably a, a path to fixing that. So to some degree we've, and you would know this as a school board uh, president is that we, uh, what we often find is that kids that aren't prepared when they leave high school, it's, it's not that they didn't pay attention in calculus their senior year in high school. It's that they entered high school behind. They didn't have the skills they needed in middle school to to be successful in high school. So they entered high school already not likely to get out of it with the success that they needed. And I think too often we, we, we clutter an education with a lot of bells and whistles that we think are important uh, that end up, I mean, my, you know, just an example to throw one out is 
you know, teaching breast self exams to middle schoolers. And I think, I think it was in Florida, like, uh, you know, um, I, I think health training, health education is really good, but you know, an hour class, you know, on that, when they, you know, when the, the risk, the risk to benefit of that compared to some more fundamental thing is, is very, uh, very small. So I think it's very easy to have uh, the legislature cluttered education with a lot of non-essential tasks that we could do a lot better removing them. And, and that's well, not an argument you... against arts and, sci- and, and other things. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah. Right. Those it's an important. argument for it's an argument for being better at a smaller core of things. And then uh, after school, expanding your knowledge. Yeah. And I think there's plenty of evidence um, showing the uh, importance of uh, arts and music to uh, other education. Um, but I do want to ask you about um, testing, because when you talk about things that really distract uh, a school day, a, you know, a lesson plan um, and, a, you know, a unit, as teachers say, um, you know, a lot of it is the intensive testing. Uh, sure, I get it that, you know, we need to see what the outcomes are. We need to see where we are. We need to measure, uh, you know, what's happening. We can't, you know, you can't fix something that you can't measure, uh, all of that. But it is, I mean, in my experience as a school board member, I'm not president of school board, by the way, I'm just, just school board. Um, uh, you know, that kind of distraction, that kind of stress um, on teachers and students, um, really, that is one of the biggest distractions that, that I hear about all the time. Uh, the amount of time that teachers have to take to prepare students to take the test, uh, to make sure the students know how to use their their cursor to drop and drag and, you know, or drag and drop or whatever, uh, all those things. Um, and then of course, you know, that that system changes all of the time back to our hysteresis um, uh, uh, impact uh, that really does distract from curriculum. Uh, and I don't know, how do you feel like that? I mean, where's the tipping point? Where is the <laughs> threshold of testing being effective and important and useful? Um, and the detrimental impact on actually, you know, teaching kids? So um, great question. So No Child Left Behind did one thing that's really critical to American education is that it forced every school in the country to be honest about its own performance. Um, and what that did was open up the eyes of a number of people. So the, the, the example that I have is in, in Tennessee, uh, where I went to graduate school, um, when No Child Left Behind was passed, the state did a couple of years of its own testing where 75% of their kids were meeting their, their literacy requirements. And then they adopted another test that would uh, uh, allow them to, that was a, a nationally calibrated test. And when they did that, they found only a quarter of their children met literacy requirements, far below the national average. Um, and so tests, using some sort of testing measure that's objective across schools uh, gives you maybe not a national comparison, but at least a interstate comparison of school quality that was really um, not available when, you know, in, in, in the 1980s, when people were complaining about, say, Muncie Community Schools, there was, you know, uh, there was no very objective standard by which to present evidence about that performance. Um, and I can just tell you, as a kid who changed schools in high school in the 1970s, right, there are huge differences between schools, and you can't tell unless you have some sort of objective measure. That 
objective measure, no child left behind, which really forced states and schools to be honest about what's going on. Um, at the same time, uh, that test measure became a, a management performance goal and any management performance goal that was any, any test, any an, an assessment that becomes a management performance goal is no longer a good assessment. And so I think to some degree, the quality of the of the, the testing as a diagnostic tool dropped off because of a, their variety of reasons from how we prep kids and that sort of thing. At the same time, we've loaded them with a lot of extra tests. Uh, and so, um, you know, a test a year that takes a day, hard, it's hard to make a compelling argument that that's a problem. You know, we're average going to run three or four snow days. Uh, but, you know, so many schools now have multiple tests along the way to prep up for that. They take diagnostic tests. They take a secondary test that measures some other, like a cognitive ability of the child. Um, then you have to pass four threshold tests in high school to get out, but 100% of kids that don't pass those tests still graduate from high school through a, you know, some waiver program. Right. And so, so what you see is, you know, if you can't pass the I-STEP, you can pass, you have to take the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery and, you know, get a 25 on that or something like that. So I think there are, um, you, what you observe when you, um, you know, we're well past the point where the sort of multiplicity of tests are generating any real net benefit to us. Uh, I, I still think there needs to be some sort of objective measure. It could be in a much smaller set of things. It could be a, a national test that's administered, you know, each year uh, uh, over a week-long period that every kid, that's sort of what happens in Europe is that you, you take a diagnostic test and you could take it over, you could take it, you know, several times so that it's not you know, high stakes. If you have allergy that day, it doesn't kill you. But though some sort of testing is going to be around in schools, but I think the consensus is it's it's gone too far. And it would be better for students uh, to maybe spend more time on their learning and less time on the evaluation. Um, and I will say that I know a lot of schools, and this was interesting because we're right at the point two years ago where COVID closed schools around the state. The do not. Uh, this was spring break last two years ago and it was it was canceled and um, that that sort of what's interesting about it is the uh, learning loss over the next year would have been very bad because the instruction mostly ends at spring break most people don't know that much instruction ends in Indiana at spring break maybe you do a week after that, and then all the rest of your time is AP prep for high school kids or prepping to finish that last uh, I step that you didn't take. And so, you know, to say that a quarter of the, you know, the year's over three quarters of the way through for test prep to me, I think suggests a, a systemic problem. Yeah, that, yeah, that seems a little excessive. So that's great. And um, so, and I want to get your take on um, certainly uh, um, my position about um, early childhood education, which you've mentioned before, um, the benefits of early childhood education on outcomes, uh, adult outcomes. And um, you know, I was in that industry for many years and saw many studies uh, showing a return on investment of uh, between seven and thirteen dollars for every dollar invested in early childhood education. Um, so, uh, you know, and it, it's everything. It's um, it as you mentioned, the high remediation cost um, in Indiana, um, as far as um, lower teen pregnancy, uh, longer marriages higher pay, 
um, are all associated with pre-K um, education. So, um, and it would add, you know, a lot to the uh, K-12 budget to include now, you know, three to five-year-olds. So another kind of three years of, um, of education for all students. So, um, but tell me why it's still a, a great idea. Yeah. So just on the cost, it would cost about as much as the tax cut we're getting next year. So it's not really a big cost issue. Um, the, it seems like it to the General Assembly, but in terms of marginal benefit, it's, it's relatively small. Um, so there are, I, I think, a, a long history of very high quality research that suggests that early childhood education benefits a large proportion of students, not, not two thirds, maybe not even half, but about a third of kids. And so kids that are really, that have some, something at home that's not working for them and pre preparing them for, for uh, primary school. And, and these could be things as simple as a, a, a parent who speaks another language, doesn't speak English. Um, it could be just a single parent who's working and not able to be with them. Um, as much. And so they can't provide them that supplementary nurturing stuff that helps you read. Uh, it could be um, a, another sibling that requires a lot of parental time because they're disabled, right? A poverty where they just don't have access to supplementary things that are expensive, you know, the, the, the things that cause you to, to grow in that area. Um, and so maybe a third of kids would benefit from this. The other two thirds maybe not as much, uh, they're already getting it because they got a stay-at-home mom or their, their parents can pay for it. So we're really talking about one out of three kids. That's about um, you know, 30,000 kids a year in Indiana over three years. So it's, it's you know, a few hundred thousand dollars for, for a few hours a day to do that. A few hundred million dollars, um, you know, again, smaller than the cut, the cut that we have. So here, you know, the benefits are that first year, there's not big benefits necessarily, except maybe the mom can now work and be productive in the economy. The big benefits come later, and they start with just better uh, attendance in school, more likelihood to be reading by third grade, much higher likelihood to be reading by third grade, um, more prepper, more a better transition to secondary education. They do better in middle school, higher high school graduation rates, lower teen pregnancy rates, less, um, uh, particularly for boys, less probability of being suspended in high school, uh, a uh, much smaller chance of being incarcerated. Not many people are incarcerated, but you know that's it's really expensive to be incarcerated. So if one out of hundred of these kids that would have gone to uh, you know jail for six months is not, that's a you know seventy thousand dollar kid savings. Um, big benefit from that. Higher probability of post-secondary education. Higher probability of graduation. Higher probability of having a full-time job. Higher probability of uh, you know, family formation uh, and, the, and the, the sort of golden uh, sequence of, you know, finishing school, getting married, and then having children uh, are, or finishing school, having a, a job, and then having children. There's different takes on it, you know, are likely with this. And so the benefits that you talk about, seven to $13, particularly for the, the really the, the poorest or the most challenged of the kids, by the time you start getting to a third, maybe that drops to four to six dollar benefit. There's no investment that you can make that's you could get four to six dollars in present value. But if you could let me know, I would I have a huge retirement fund that I would like to cash in to get to get that. And so from in terms of public investment dollars, when you're getting a penny of uh, investment value on a new road 
or you're getting a negative value on uh, on a tax cut because you already have really low taxes. Uh, those things really matter. There's diminishing returns. If you had universal pre-K and that sort of thing, then that's really expensive and there's a lot fewer kids that benefit. So even in places like Sweden that have that, you know, only 60% or so kids take it because they, their you know, parents are staying home with them. They, they wish a different experience with them. So I'm not suggesting that the, the state's doing this. It's really providing a low cost supplement to what families are trying to do. And the really best of these programs, the Perry Preschool and Absidarian also have parent programs. And we're doing that in Muncie where the preschool, the early childhood education investments are targeting parents as much so that parents are getting classes on here's how you, you know, these are the things you need to know by the time you show up to kindergarten to be ready to learn. So here's how you make sure your kids know their colors, their numbers, their letters, um, and, and that sort of thing. That And, and, to, and to be quite candid, um, I, I, you know, I was a, uh, a parent. I knew not, my wife knew all that stuff, but I didn't know any of that stuff. So it's not something that that it, most parents wouldn't benefit from taking instruction on. But that's one of the big bangs for the buck is just helping parents do this. It's not, you know, they're not doing crazy stuff. It's just, you know, how do you make sure your kids reinforce learning colors and numbers and, um, you know, how do they learn to interact with other people and uh, all that sort of stuff, sort of growing up. And, and, and it's a very helpful, I think, in, in an environment where we all admit that one of the big challenges for, for poorer income families are the absence of a two-parent household. And this is some, some way of mitigating the ill effects of that. Yep, yep, it does make a difference. So, okay, so I'm, so I'm sorry, we didn't get to as many things as I want, but we are um, running out of time. But um, I guess I, I just want to ask, you know, what is the number? So what is the number? What is the dollar amount that we need to invest in education, uh, pre-K as well as K-12, um, to really move the needle in yeah. terms of, uh, you know, you know, higher incomes and uh, productivity growth uh, that would, you know, put us better than, you know, fourth last. Yeah, I think we need to send about 10,000 more children a year. We have about 80,000 kids turn 19 each year and about half, 53, 54% of those goes on, go on to some sort of college and about half of them graduate. So that's going to keep us moving towards Mississippi. I think we need to have another 10,000 of those children, young adults go to college and about half of those graduate from a four-year institution. To do that, I think it's gonna cost the better part of a billion dollars uh, from pre-K because the, the, that's where it starts, right? By third, if you ask any third grade teacher, they can tell you which one of their kids are gonna yeah. not graduate from high school. Right. So the fact that think about the poverty of American public policy that you can look at eight year old and, and the teachers can with huge success predict which ones are not going to graduate from high school. And so about a billion dollars a year, we might get by with 800 million. Uh, we would be, do better with one point two billion dollars a year. That would put us closer to what Ohio is spending on a per capita basis or per student basis for for schooling. I think that's really what we're talking about, which is far less uh, uh, than we paid as a share of our gross domestic product back in 2009. It still would be a tax cut from 2009 on Hoosier families. It's just that our tax reduction has been so, uh, so deep across the board 
that we're really now being taxed right among the lowest states in the country. And we're getting the, the outcomes that, that we don't want as a consequence of that. Great, great. Well, I think that's a great point to end this on. I think that's very clear and, and uh, you know, and a, and a good directive. So, all right, well, thank you so much um, for joining me and talking about this. This is really just uh, fascinating uh, work that you're doing. And I'm really proud that you're here in Indiana uh, at doing this great work and, uh, and, you know, and really talking about it. I appreciate that you, know, you really want to get this message out. So it is very important and it is very important for all of us to, to hear from you. Well, thank you, I appreciate it. And uh, my colleagues at the center, appreciate the people listening to the work that we, that we are spending every day on here. So thank you. Very good. All right, thank you. Let's see.